Hello there. Welcome to the podcast that we call Frenchie, a show dedicated to the stories and legacies of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II, as told by the veterans themselves. I'm your host, Jason Theriot. For 20 years, I've been interviewing World War II veterans and capturing their stories. Many of them were Cajuns, people of Acadian descent. They were the last generation to grow up speaking French as their first language. It is therefore imperative that we capture and document their stories for posterity. When the young Cajuns went overseas, their ability to speak French proved invaluable to military operations, and it had a profound impact on their sense of a Cajun identity. What emerged from this unique wartime experience was a long-lost pride in their heritage. When the military needed bilingual interpreters, they called on Frenchie to bridge the language gap. In this two-part series, we chronicle the story of the Cajuns of the Louisiana National Guard, the 2nd Battalion of the 156th Infantry Regiment of the famed 31st Dixie Division, consisted of several companies of guardsmen from the Bayou Country. Nearly all of them grew up speaking French as their first language. This entire unit spent more than two years training together before being shipped overseas to North Africa and then to Italy and southern France. The history of this Cajun Guard unit is particularly unique as it represented the largest French-speaking American infantry unit within the U.S. military during World War II. These were highly trained and well-drilled GIs, but only a select few ever saw frontline combat. Instead, the Army opted to reorganize these National Guard companies into combat military police units where their bilingual skills could be most beneficial in the transportation sector and in communicating with locals. Many of the Cajuns in these National Guard units grew up on farms or spent time hunting and trapping in the woods and marshes. They knew how to cook and handle themselves in the outdoors, even at a young age. They grew up in a French-speaking community and learned English much later on through secondary education. They went to Catholic Mass on Sundays and placed emphasis on family values. The local guard provided an opportunity for these young Cajun men, who shared so many cultural similarities, to bond together for the defense of their community and country. Joining the guard was the thing to do. It also paid well, about $13 per month, which was a lot of money for a 17 or 18 year old back then. Company F in Brobridge, for instance, had a waiting list for young men to join. A writer for our National Guard publication wrote, it's a community project, the center of civic and social activities. Not to be un homme de la garde nationale was unthinkable, he wrote. With war inching ever closer to American soil, President Roosevelt federalized the National Guard in November of 1940. The entire 156th Infantry Regiment of the State Guard was shipped off to Camp Blanding, an unfinished training camp in the Florida swamps near Gainesville. They stayed in Florida for over a year, participated in several military maneuvers, and eventually ended up at Camp Bowie, Texas, with other National Guard units from around the country. There were well over 500 native-born Cajuns serving with the local National Guard companies in the 2nd Battalion. Through it all, these Cajuns maintained tight unit cohesion and strict military discipline. They had been molded into hardened, expert infantrymen. 
They were tough hombres and carried a chip on their shoulders. Their cultural differences stood out, but instead of conforming, they persisted in their Cajun ways. Homer Como was one of several veterans from the National Guard whom I had the honor of interviewing many years ago. I was 17. I was 17. And um, I just signed on him because I was too young and mom and daddy didn't, didn't agree to it and they didn't want to sign, but I signed anyhow. And I left with all my friends because I believe that he left New York in 1940. That's when the that's when they organized it and shipped us to Flanders. And we stayed there 13 months. We were supposed to come back within a year, but they kept us longer than when they were supposed to. And right then and there, we figured something was wrong. We, uh, we knew they wouldn't have kept us there for a reason to train us for one more month. They was keeping us there to treat us for one more month. And uh, I didn't, I don't have no education. The little education I had, it's not much. But I had enough sense to know they was keeping us there for a reason. And within that month, the, the war broke out and they shipped us to uh, North and South Carolina. We bought it, uh, the coast there. Yeah. Well, I had a lot of friends that was in there, and they asked me to join, and I joined with them. Oh, yes, I can remember a lot of them. But they, do, you remember, do you remember some of their names? Oh, yeah, they all passed away, but you want to tell me Yeah, who were your close buddies? Well, uh, when I went in, it was a River Sabah, which called it Mud, Wall Sabah, uh, Shorty Bruce Hall. You did so long. Um, Wallace Thibodeau, but we wasn't close with I knew of him. Tim Rousseau, Ellis LeGrange. Then we had uh, Lustig Courage. He got killed. He transferred away from us and went for uh, Apple, Apollo, and he got killed overseas. He's the honest man that we lost, that we, I know of. What about Ronson? Uh, yeah, what Argo Ronson. How did, how did he die? Well, he transferred from, away from our company. And uh, I couldn't tell you exactly how he died, but uh, he died. Was it combat related? Combat related. My mom and dad were so poor, that, and so many children were figured one off, off their back would be. But they were against me joining. Yeah. Not because they didn't want to defend that country, it's because they they was worried about my, my safety. But uh, like I said, I don't have much education, but I had enough sense to stay out of trouble, and there was nobody that could back me up. Yeah. There was nobody in the world that could could make me back. And that's what. I believed in. I believed in my country, and I fought for my country, and I go back and fight again. That's great. John Medier, another member from Company G of New Iberia, joined with all of his friends in late 1940 
and later became an officer in the regular army. He received a Purple Heart and a Silver Star for heroic action in combat in France in 1944. And uh, we were inducted into federal service uh, in uh, uh, de December, I think it was, of 1940. And uh, uh, while we were inducted uh, for training for a period of a year, and uh, the uh, uh, Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor in 41, the end of the year, also December 7th. Oh, well, we did go uh, to uh, North Louisiana for maneuvers. Okay. In fact, uh, I uh, went on about three maneuvers during the time I was in, in the service, three Louisiana maneuvers. And, uh, but we, over there, it was just a temporary uh, chance that we had, you know. Oh, <laughs> I was uh, going to tell you a little bit about uh, when we got to Camp Lane. Uh, they weren't quite ready for us yet. And uh, so uh, we ate from food that was cooked outside, like in a helium, you know, and uh, uh, I think one latrine was finished for the battalion. So instead of four latrines, we had one that we had to use. And the people would come by, and on the license, they had the sunshine state, you know, and uh, it rained for days. It looked like days. We were at Camblain. I had gone to a movie in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, they stopped the movie, and uh, they announced uh, for all servicemen to report to their base immediately. And uh, so we left and uh, went to our, our base at Camp Lane, which was about 125 miles away. I guess. Wow! I think I think it was. It is in Deansville, Florida. Uh, and uh, when we got there, they were loading up on trucks. And uh, after we got there and put our equipment on there too, uh, we drove throughout the night, we rode uh, to uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And what they were doing, they were deploying the, the uh, uh, division on the East Coast. And could have been another division, maybe, that they used to uh, uh, cover the whole East Coast. Uh, we were in Charleston, and uh, one of the other battalion general division were in Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, the reason they did that, I think, I don't know if they really expected uh, the Japanese to try to invade, or if uh, they thought they might do it, maybe for psychological reasons, you know. Uh, but they thought it was better for us to be over there in case that happened. So what we were actually doing there, we were defending uh, America. Ed Broussard joined the same company at the age of 18. He went with his friends and comrades to the Louisiana Maneuvers, to Camp Blanding, to South Carolina, and finally to Camp Bowie, Texas. Like John Midier, 
He was one of a select few who transferred out of the Guard and became an officer in the regular Army. He, too, received the Silver Star for combat action at the Battle of the Bulge. He recalled the night of December 7, 1941, when his unit loaded up in trucks at Camp Landing and headed north in the middle of the night to South Carolina to guard the East Coast. Sunday night, the kitchen post had to get rid of things that were not feasible to move with. Mm -hmm. We didn't know where we were going. But we knew we were moving somewhere from Landing. Immediately? Yeah. 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 So uh, the cooks gave us a supply of an LX. We had nice little butter from drinking extra. And when we did leave, uh, we went headed north from Camp Landing, not knowing. And we ended up at uh, Charleston, South Carolina. There they put us on guard duty. Stony Field. So it's right next to the Citadel Military School. And we were in the same kind of parameter of fence that we had been in at Branding. And there we go on call duty from that little camp. But on the way up there, from the section of another X-ray, me and the brother of Congressman Camille Gravel, he married the Scientology company. Slept on the floor of a two and a half ton truck and slept all the way to Charleston. I didn't know where we were. He got through the next right. And they also gave canned horses. We were smart enough not to mix an LX At Stony Field in Charleston, the Cajuns made themselves right at home. A local newspaper reporter picked up on their arrival and ventured into their army camp to write a story about these peculiar French-speaking Louisiana soldiers. In this next segment, Ed Broussard's grandson. Jason Foster, reads from a 1942 article in the Charleston newspaper that describes this interesting bunch from the Bayou country. A foreign legion has come to Charleston and the French-speaking soldiers from the Louisiana bayous, now stationed at Stony Field. But these freest French, while not precisely English and not exactly French, are absolutely American. Their forefathers were driven out of Acadia along with Evangeline of the Longfellow fame, and came down to settle under the giant moss-hung oaks that shadow the lazy moving Bayou Tesh. A former commander of this group, the courteous Major Simon Castile, explains that most of these men were born on rice, sugarcane, or cotton plantations, and many spent their first days outdoors farming or hunting and fishing. Hunting developed the aim which has brought distinction to their marksmanship in the Army. Their previous outdoor life had toughened them until they found the maneuvers comparatively easy. Some days they marched as many as 26 miles in a single day. When first taken into the Army, 
This band of French-speaking soldiers were first given instructions in French and then in English. Many, of course, had learned English in the parochial schools, but they often dropped back into their French Creole patois when they got together. Very much at home in Charleston are these Louisianians who found much similarity in the ancient charm of the atmosphere and the type of architecture with that of New Orleans. Delicious seafood is another point in favor of Charleston where these soldiers are concerned. The Creole chefs at Stonyfield have been having a fine time since they arrived here, making their famous crawfish bisque and chicken oyster gumbo. Not without due cause is the company's mess one of the most popular at the field and one that draws the most visitors. A lively, well-groomed lieutenant from Louisiana raised an eyebrow and commented modestly. The men in this outfit are noted as the best fighters, the best cooks, and the best lovers in the Army. From Charleston, the Cajun Guard units were sent on their third Louisiana maneuvers, then on to Camp Bowie, Texas, where they continued training with other units from Texas, Oklahoma, and New York. At Bowie, they ran into a few problems with their Anglo comrades who often complain about the Cajuns' cultural norms. Did y'all have problems with some of the commanders and, and, and the lieutenants because y'all were speaking French? Not so much in our company, but in the Bluebridge Company, they spoke French a lot. They were really few. Of course, they were not familiar with our culture. Uh -huh. Why is that? Why were they? They spoke French and poor English. So they were laughed at, maybe? Uh, yeah. Not understood? There were some fights in town that originated from knowing that those laws were from Africa. Fights with some of the other. Texas oh, National Guard yeah. or Oklahoma National Guard. Mm -hmm. Camp Bowie, we were training just as we would anywhere else. Right. We didn't integrate with the other units. Homer Como harbored the same feelings about his fellow Cajuns from neighboring towns. Very good people from Bowbridge and some other ones that were seen people. And, uh, they helped the war a whole lot. Nah. They like us. They wouldn't back up. Yeah. And Cajun wouldn't back up or nothing. Now y'all, y'all probably most of y'all, if not all of y'all, probably spoke French fluently. Oh, 99 percent. Oh yeah. And from what I've read is that uh, at the beginning when y'all went in, most of y'all orders were given in French. Well, some of the orders. Some of the orders might have given, but they they got away from that because they they had to the teach us. In English, okay. They didn't want us, you know, they wanted us to speak French, but not to train as Frenchmen because we had to know, we had to know the American rules. Right. Warren Abair was in Company E out of Generette, Louisiana. Like most of these young men from the Bayou Country, he grew up speaking French and English. He was gung-ho for joining the local militia with his buddies long before the clouds of war broke out. You see, I... I'll... When I was 16, I joined the National Guard. My family had to sign something. Okay. Okay, I stayed in there for a year till about what year was that, Lisa? I, 
I hate to interrupt. Hey, that was, was way before 39, we went to walk. 39, 39, yeah. Wow. 39. What made you I want to do that? Well, you know when you, you know, uh, you want to adventure. Right. That's what I call that, it. That's right. Uh, you know, I wanted to, I, I like the outdoors and all of that, uh, big hunter and everything. And uh, so, okay, I joined the National Guard in 39, and they took me out of school in 40, because we had to go for a year in Camp Landing, Florida. They sent us over to Camp Landing, Florida for a year. And they took you yeah, out of school. I was lacking a half a credit of graduate. I asked my principal, Mr. Corbin, I said, how about giving us that half a credit for military and we can graduate? And we can't do that. They also told me they had a flag in my chair, you know, when they graduated. I was in Africa then. We went to Camp Landing for, for a whole year. And uh, strenuous, real strenuous work, you know, in the mud, running obstacle courses, and hiking, and like I said, we walked 150 miles, 30 miles a day from Jacksonville to Ocala, Florida. And uh, they give us a statement. Was that on the highway, on the beach path, or in the sand? You know, sand. In other words, you make a step in the slide. It was terrible, but we did it anyway. That's why I say we were in tip-top tip -top condition to go to war. Leonard Martin was born in Arneville, Louisiana, where his family spoke both French and English. He joined Company F of Brobridge and later transferred to Headquarters Company of the 2nd Battalion. I joined the National Guard right out of high school in 1940. Mm-hmm. Uh, I... Finished high school, I think it was June at the time. They graduated in June. Mm -hmm. Probably a month or so after I joined the Guards. And I knew several of the people in the Guards already when I joined. Mm -hmm. Some of them were in school with me, most of them were. And that's Company F out of Brobridge? Out of Brobridge. And then we had a Colonel Castile, who was the battalion commander. And all, all the officers at that time were from Rubridge, or around Rubridge. When we went to federal service, we, you know, we kept our same officers for, well, until uh, Pearl Harbor came around, and then we got, our officers got moved out, and we had some new officers come in. Yeah, uh, and we had, in, in between those times, we had some draftees that came in from all those all over the country, mm -hmm. who could not speak French. Mm -hmm. But basically, 90% of the boys that were their battalions spoke French. That's something. Once at Camp Bowie, Texas, however, the Cajuns' French-speaking habits had to be dialed back just a bit. Uh, we had gotten a captain, Champagne, I think he was from maybe Baton Rouge or somewhere, that came in our pit, and uh, he didn't want us to speak French anymore. Anybody who was a sergeant or a corporal or whatever would rack your held. If he caught you speaking French, he'd, he'd bust you down to private. So we'd hide in the latrine and everyone to speak French. And, uh, several of us 
and her out of the company because of him. I don't blame you. But, you know, you tell, well, what happened, some of the boys that were drafted started complaining about us speaking French, you know. Uh-huh. I came around and said, well, you can't speak French anymore. That was kind of hard to take. Some of the guys, there was a, probably, you know, they, they resented the, I guess they felt that we were, when we speak together, they, they thought maybe we were speaking uh, about them, you know, and uh-huh. criticizing them. Thing. And we never did that, you know, just just the habit we had of speaking French. Uh-huh. Hard to break. The old men whose voices you hear in this episode have long since passed away. Fortunately, I recently discovered that there was one of these Cajuns of the Louisiana National Guard still living in Henderson, Louisiana. In August 2021, I had the honor of interviewing 99-year-old Major Addie Melanson, who served in the Brobridge Company as a proud French-speaking soldier. Well, you remember, I was a former right here. Make sure, Kane, we used to load two times a sugarcane before we go to school. Well, they called me from Brobridge for me if I wanted to join the National Guard. At that time, $13 a month was a lot of money, and I joined the Guard. Well, we went to camp, and my brothers, who was 15 months older than me, joined. But I had lied one year, so that made us three months apart. Colonel Castile called us in one day. He said, I know your dad and your mom are good people, but how they made you all three months apart, I said, I don't know. So <laughs> I, told, I told him, I said, Colonel, I, I lied about my age. I said, you can get me out. No, no, he said, I have to have 135 people to go to Camp Landing. If I let you go, I gotta find somebody to replace you. Let's forget about the age. And that's how I ended up at Camp Landing. Well, I couldn't, I didn't know anything in English. Mama and, <coughs> Mama and Daddy couldn't speak English, but they could understand you. And what little I knew which came from that. But when I went to school, I spoke French, I got punished because I was speaking French instead of English. We had a little country school right here, about a mile from here, Borgard High, Borgard Grade School. We went there till the third grade, and the fourth grade we went to Cecilia by bus. How did the teachers punish you? With a ruler. She was a mean bitch. Well, you had to be careful what you said in class and what you did out of class, because she was going to beat the hell out of you. That was that country teacher. Then when I went to Cecilia, our uh, fourth grade teacher was in the guards. And as I grew older, I grew with that in mind, and that's later why I joined the guards. Mm-hmm. Because Bienville was my, my tutor. We used to have a marching units from overalls. We'd march at these. Uh, every summer, the three schools would meet together for competition, 
and he would, we would drill in the, with a rifle and some overalls. We were 23 people. Benzer was our instructor. He was tough. He, but he was good. He knew what he was talking about. And that's part of my life until I graduated. Nobody spoke English at all. Nobody knew anything about English. None. My, all my mama's brothers and sisters didn't know a damn word in English. <coughs> they all spoke French until we got to school. As noted before, the commanders of the guard, primarily Colonel Castile, was notorious for giving close order drills in French. Get the hell in step, he would call out to get their attention. Yes, get the hell in step. We couldn't get in step, but we were watching. How, how do you say that in French? Uh, <laughs> uh, the company commander would say, get if you are two dollars right, we better go back up, we know we're all sick. That means back up or go forward or start well, around. There's no date stamped on that. Yeah. But then, I'm not going to on this is Paul. Bring the gun up to your shoulder and snap it down. I don't remember exactly how it is. They all had a command in French because very few of them could speak English. The unabashed French-speaking Company F from Brobridge received national media attention in the early stages of the war. An article appeared in the Lieko de Teche Church Bulletin as a reprint from a popular magazine story. Company F, 156th Infantry, was composed of National Guardsmen from the Bayou country of Louisiana. As French as Paris, as independent as their own swamp country, the men decided to issue orders in their native tongue. In fact, many could not speak English. In this way, matters proceeded calmly for quite a while. Then one day, a flock of selectees were sent into Company F. There stood the newcomers, boys from Mississippi and Alabama, listening with hanging jaws to close order drill commands in the French language. Some of the selectees had been involved in the military before and thought they could carry out commands perfectly. But the best of drill sergeants fall far short of mutilating orders when compared to these French-speaking sergeants. Final outcome of the affair was the assignment of an interpreter by division headquarters. Then there was the matter of cooking. Those Bayou lads liked their food seasoned. Shrimp by the barrel, rice by the sack, and seasoning by the case arrived from home. A small area of Camp Landing, Florida took on the atmosphere of Southern Louisiana. Because they stayed together for more than two years of training, the Cajuns felt content with maintaining their cultural distinctiveness, even when criticized by outsiders. We used to assemble at, at night at the PX, drink beer, and shoot the bull amongst each other, but in French. And the guy handling the BX did no shit. He thought we were criticizing him. <laughs> and he quit services of beer one night. So we went back, we told Castile that. I got go to feed that ass. So Castile went over there and told that guy, by tomorrow morning you lose your job, I 
that you can feed these people what they want to feed, whether they speak French or English or Spanish. And that guy served as well after that. That's one thing about Castile. He was strict but fair. He used to forget that he's supposed to say it in English. He turned around and gave us an order in French and then marched away. He was both. Louis Bosch was mostly French whenever he gave it all. Well, when we met together our Frenchmen, we'd speak French, and these guys would go report us to the company commanders, the damned Frenchmen. All they can do is speak French, not know English. So, uh, Castile told him, he said, if you don't want to speak French to them, get the hell out of the way. They talk what they want. And that was it. So the, the guy from New York and the rest left alone. Mm -hmm. And when we came to Louisiana, the company I was with, they were, no, I was, the, let's see, we were one from Lafayette, two from Abbeville, we had a recon company uh, truck. We were six people. Jake LaSalle from New Iberia, uh, Terrio from Bayview, and myself at Percy Dupree, we were six. We came to Louisiana Manoeuvres, and from there we went to Cape Shelby, Mississippi. That's when I got appointed and went to officer school. Whether in Florida, South Carolina, Texas, or in North Louisiana during maneuvers, the young men from the predominantly French-speaking communities banded together and built a camaraderie that could not be matched. After two years of various training camps, this hardy bunch of well-trained soldiers were ready for combat overseas. They shipped out of New York in late 1942 and arrived in England to prepare for their first major overseas campaign. But something happened along the way. The Army, in its infinite wisdom, recognized that these rough-and-tough Cajun soldiers had a unique skill that would be critical to the Allied efforts in the French-speaking regions of North Africa, Italy, and southern France. Their activities and accolades overseas would be dictated not by their army training, but by their bilingual abilities. This concludes this episode of the Frenchie Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Theriot. Join us for more of the fascinating stories of the French-speaking Cajuns of World War II as told by the veterans themselves. In the next episode, we will follow these Cajuns to the shores of North Africa and then on to Europe where their French language played a key role in their mission as combat military police. We'd like to thank our sponsors, the Acadia Museum in Erath, the Regional Military Museum in Homa, the Atchafalaya National Heritage Area, and Codafil, the Council for the Development of French in Louisiana. Music provided by Josh Caffrey and Chris Segura. Audio editing and engineering done by Chris Segura of the Center for Louisiana Studies at UL and Lafayette.